so we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Oh, good. Okay. So I'm going to read Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, which is our focus today, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there's no law. Kindness is everywhere right now, right? I wore my shirt. <laughs> it's from my part of my closet. That's my school stuff. So shirts, posters, Hobby Lobby has a whole aisle of be kind stuff. It's true. And Crayola even has an entire box of crayons dedicated to kindness. And I put a box on your table. So in your notes, this is what you find out when your second grade teacher is stuff like this. So one of you can take those home because I have like a whole case of them. So in your notes, I put some little coloring book, little things. So take them out and, and look at the little names on each color because Crayola has, is going to coach you on kindness. <laughs> and I know we don't have PowerPoint, so I'll, I'll let you know when it's time to fill in your blank. And I'm sorry if I sound like a second grade teacher. <laughs> I'll let you know. Yes. So before we get much further, I have some resources I wanted to start passing around because there's a lot of you. Um, I have, Tiffany's going to help me with this. I have these four books that were just a wealth of information as I prepared today. And I found that they all quoted each other. So I thought it was the perfect sort of selection of books. One is um, sort of an unknown author, maybe in our circles, but maybe not in others. Mary Beakey wrote this book called The Law of Kindness. It's really good. And Jerry Bridges, who's well-known, The Fruitful Life, is an excellent book. And um, Lou Priolo um, has many great books, but the one I used a lot for today is The Heart of Anger. And, and then uh, the last one, which is also just such a great book, Nancy DeMoss Wilgamuth, Adorned. And so if you're like me and you love to buy books, or if you have a wish list, um, Tiffany's going to help pass these around and write them down and... So uh, another resource I used heavily for today is the Risen Motherhood, um, just their, their podcast and their website was so great. So if I say Mary and Lou and Nancy, it's like I feel like I'm on a first name basis with my favorite authors. So here's a little background on the modern kindness movement. There was a beginning to all this. Um, around 1993, there's something that started called the Random Acts of Kindness Movement. Anne Herbert published her book. It was called Random Kindness and Senseless, Senseless Acts of Beauty. And I totally remember this because in like around 93, when my kids were babies, I was in McDonald's and I pulled up to pay and the, the cashier said, oh, the person in front of you paid for your order on me to tell you it was a random act of kindness. Do you guys remember that? Any of the moms that were around, it was big. There were bumper stickers and all kinds of things. And so what followed was lots of people paying for fast food, giving away lottery tickets, bumper stickers, and it all kind of faded out quickly, of course, until about 10 years later, something started up called smile cards. You may have seen those or some around. They're like a little business card with a happy face on them. And it's sort of like a game of tag. Someone will do something nice and hand you a smile card, and then you're supposed to go do something nice or kind. And lastly, you may not know this, but February 17th is National Kindness Day. Did you know that? Uh-oh, you may have missed it. That's okay. Next year, <laughs> next year you'll have another chance to be kind. 
just once. It's just one day. So the worldly, sorry, I have badly known sinus infection. So I have my Kleenex and my emergency cough drop. So, and my water. <laughs> so the worldly or popular definition of kindness and goodness are different than a biblical kindness. Worldly kindness emphasizes affirmation, tolerance, and simply being nice. It can be shallow, self-serving, and it's often phony. So a cutting example of this is Ellen DeGeneres. If you've ever watched her show, you don't have to admit it. I never, but we all know who she is. I never had time to watch, during the day to watch her show, but did you know she was known as the queen of kind? So she had a carefully crafted image and she ended every show with the stated reminder, be kind to one another. She had episodes of very generous gift giving and it all came to an abrupt end. And you've probably heard about this because the truth came out because Ellen in her personal life was very unkind. Stories started pouring out about the toxic, racist, abusive work environment that she headed. When the cameras were rolling, she played kind, but the real Ellen wasn't. Now, I know cancel culture can be unfair, so I don't really want to focus that or emphasize that, but I just share the story to show the shallowness of worldly kindness when we try to pretend to be kind. But that being said, we don't really have to look to show business for examples of shallow or phony kindness, do we? At school, I was telling Joy, I had this story uh, that happened during Kindness Week, which is usually right around Valentine's Day. They, um, some kind soul, I'm not sure who it was, put posters on every classroom window that had little tabs at the bottom where students could tear it off, do the kind act, whatever it said. It was like, say something kind to someone or pick up a piece of trash. Then they could turn that in for a chance to get a prize. Now, at the bottom of the poster, there were about 12 tabs, and I have 29 students. So as they walked out the door, there was a lot of elbowing and pushing and tears, and it looked like a raccoon had torn it up by the time it was over, and it was just like, so I had to bring them back in and guys, and say, do you guys see what you've done? It was, you know, you're supposed to be kind, and look what you've done, because they were selfish, and they, yeah, it was, it was shallow. Okay, but there is genuine kindness in the world, though. We can't all accuse them all of being phony. We're made in God's image, and he is kind and good. God's gift of common grace allows for some goodness in the world. So we see that there are people who are generous, sensitive to the needs of others, and kind and good. And we certainly want people to be kind to each other. But the Bible has a really different view of the source or the root of kindness and goodness. The Bible teaches that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Along with our saving faith, our good works are given to us by God. And as we define kindness, we learn that it's much more than simple actions. It's a trait. Kindness is what God is. He is the author of kindness, and he is kindness personified, and he shares it with us. He shows great kindness to us in salvation and through his grace in our everyday life. Here's a favorite verse of mine that reminds me of God's kindness towards us in salvation. Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The foundation of everything we're going to talk about today is the truth that God was merciful, kind, and good to us in salvation. 
So I do want to make sure we have a really clear definition of biblical kindness because it's been such a popular topic in, uh, in the world. And also, how do we apply it in our role as mothers? This is our task today. So we're going to spend a few minutes with a few solid definitions and a word cloud that's in your handout. So the word cloud is from Risen Motherhood. I borrowed it with permission. I emailed them and they said, yes, I could use their stuff. So this is in your outline. Get ready. Get your pencils or pens. Kindness is a heart attitude, a tender concern for others created by the Holy Spirit. Goodness is kindness in action, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So your first line is heart. The second one is kindness in action. And Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And Jerry Bridges in his book, The Fruitful Life, which is being passed around, says this, Kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others. Goodness is the activity calculated, calculated to advance that happiness. And together, they indicate an active desire to recognize and meet the needs of others. So what is the root or the source of our kindness? And this is in your outline. Two ways. First, there's a human source of kindness. It comes by our own effort, power, and will. It can lead to a performance or muddled motives. But like I said before, there is kindness and goodness that can come from someone who's not saved or made in God's image, and he's good and kind. We don't need to doubt people's motives or good deeds, but we do know this. There's a spiritual source of kindness, and that's your next line. A spiritual source of kindness comes as the expected result of a healthy Christian and by the indwelling or fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it helps to reflect on whether or not we're seeing goodness and kindness in our own lives. Sometimes it's hard to see. So let's take a look at the diagram below, the word cloud. I think it helps to have a full picture of what kindness is and what characteristics you'd see in yourself. I'm not going to go over this. I want you to look at it later, maybe with your group or at home. But as you look at the diagram, remember that true kindness is more than just outward behaviors. It's a heart that's been made good through the kindness of Christ. And with that, it has the source to overflow with kindness towards others. God enables us to be transformed into his likeness through the Spirit. The Spirit produces godly fruit in our lives like kindness. We read that in Galatians 5.22, right? So Christ transforms our heart through salvation. He fuels the fruit through his Holy Spirit. And I want to show you some ways that Christ was our perfect example of kindness. Let's go look at a few verses here to talk about uh, looking at Christ. He was kindness personified. In Matthew 11.28 and 29, we read, come, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew 19, we read that he was gentle and kind to the children who came to him. In Acts 10.38, we read that Jesus went about doing good, like he cared for the widow in Luke 7. He taught the good Samaritan in Luke, about the good Samaritan in Luke 10. He healed the sick in Luke 17 and other places. He fed the multitudes who were there for his teaching in Matthew 14 and other Gospels. He turned water into wine. 
That was kind. He taught the people, he met their needs. He taught the people to love others and to show mercy, even to their enemies. So Christ knew their spiritual needs and their physical needs, and he met them. So we can look at these as examples as we grow in Christ-likeness. Of course, we can't perform miracles, but we can have a heart that's more and more like Christ. As the Spirit dwells in us and we grow as mature believers, the fruit of the Spirit becomes our essence. Kindness and goodness spills into all we do, not just as a singular act or a campaign of kindness. It's who we are. We are kind, when we are kind and when we are good, we shine the light of God's grace in our lives back on him. So we should ask ourselves, do I have a heart of kindness and an awareness of the needs of others? Do I put my heart into action and do I do good to others? So let's talk about how to get there. I have some ideas for you. So conveniently, Risen Motherhood focused on the fruit of the Spirit this summer. Did you guys pick up on that or hear any of that? So... It was perfect for me as I was prepping for this. It's a great resource. And so um, there's an article that I, that I borrowed and kind of adapted for today. It's five tips on becoming kind. And this is in your outline. I'm just going to make sure I'm following along with you. Yep, five kindness tips. So this is point number two. First tip is meditate on the great kindness of God. God is immeasurably kind. The Bible teaches that it's his great kindness that leads us to repentance. We know this when we read Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance? So remember this, God's kindness towards us is the foundation of our kindness towards others. Tip number two, recognize that kindness is a discipleship issue, among other things. In one of the scripture's key mentoring passages for women, older women are instructed to train younger women to be kind, Titus 2.5. Kindness is a discipleship issue. That's why you're here today, right? With your mentor moms. So learn how to be kind by seeing examples, practicing, and putting on kindness. So you do well to hang around some older godly women to observe this trait in their lives. And be brave and ask them for input and feedback on how you could grow in this area. And thirdly, intentionally put kindness on. In Colossians 3.12, Paul instructs us to put on God's kindness. This Greek word means to envelop yourself or to clothe with your with kindness. The metaphor of changing clothing was widely used in the ancient world to illustrate spiritual transformation. And that's why Paul wanted his friends to understand that since they were now saints, they needed to start dressing the part. They needed to intentionally put on the apparel of Christ and clothe themselves with his kindness. This point goes hand in hand with the point before. We often need help seeing what this actually looks like in our homes and with our children. Number four, watch for kindness killers. This one hurts a little, I'm going to be honest. Kindness killers are sinful attitudes and actions that cause us to miss opportunities to do good and can also cause us to be unkind rather than kind. 
their attitudes and actions that are opposite of the ones in the kindness word cloud. Sins like impatience, callousness, pride, bitterness, harshness, meanness, unforgiveness, and resentment are all kindness killers. You might want to consider what stands in your way of doing good. If you're like me, I don't always act on the kind deeds that the Lord puts on my heart. Why not? I'm disorganized, I'm busy, and sometimes forgetful. One time, I actually forgot to take a meal to a widow who had had knee surgery. She called me, and I quickly picked up a meal and brought it to her. Thankfully, she was very understanding, and we laughed about it, and I still cringe thinking about it. (laughs) It's a true story. I forgot. I didn't write it down. In his book, Fruitful Life, Jerry Bridges points out that there's cost to to good deeds, and it's true, like with our time and with our thoughts and effort. But it's important to remember that opportunities for doing good are not interruptions in God's plan for us. They're part of his plan. We always have time to do what God wants us to do. A common kindness killer is impatience. We know that patience and kindness are woven closely together. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that. Patience and kindness are the hallmarks of living a life of godly love. Patience is a big kindness killer, isn't it? Elizabeth George says this about her personal definition of patience. Patience does nothing. Patience is the front end of the three fruit that relate to people. Patience, goodness, and kindness. And it's the passive part of love. It's love doing nothing. Nothing gives us time, even a second, to do something important, to pray, to reflect, and to plan, and to respond in a righteous manner. That's from a woman's walk with God. That's good, isn't it? I'm going to read that again. Patience does nothing. Tell yourself that in your head. Patience does nothing. Patience is the front end of the three fruit that relate to people. Patience, goodness, and kindness. It's love doing nothing. Doing nothing gives time, even a second, to do something important, to pray, to reflect, and to plan to respond in a righteous manner. So think about what your kindness killer is. Think, pray, confess, and work on it. Consider that a homework assignment. Number five, love to show kindness. To do this, you have to look up and look around. The Lord wants us to love putting his kindness on display. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Every day, watch for opportunities to demonstrate kindness towards others. Apart from God's grace, I know we're naturally so self-focused. We are a busy group. We have a lot to get done. And to be honest, we have problems of our own. We need kindness. We need goodness. And some of us are hindered by our own personalities. Shyness or insecurities get in the way of reaching out. Perfectionism and fear of man sometimes keep us from acting in a way other than a picture-perfect act of kindness. So these five kindness tips are meant to help you develop kindness. Also important is to know where and with whom the Lord wants us to show kindness. So I want to take you through three places really quickly about where the Lord wants us to show kindness. In our community, in our church, and in our homes. And in our homes is where we're going to primarily focus today. So first, in your community. Everyone in, our, in the world is our neighbor, but our next-door neighbor is conveniently close to receive kindness. 
a meal on someone sick, helps with the help with trash cans or yard work, babysitting, keep an eye on the house when someone's out of town, even a friendly wave and a greeting is kindness and doesn't always happen in every neighborhood. Mary Beakey in her book, The Law of Kindness, reminds us that acts of kindness and kind words to people we don't know can open the door to the greatest kindness of all, and that is telling someone the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Human love can lay the foundation for divine love to enter the heart. So be thinking about how you can be kind and do good in your neighborhood, in your community. There's opportunities to bring food, help clean up, even holding the door for someone or smiling or showing you care. Don't hide out in your home. Get to know people outside of your family and church. Go play at the park. This is perfect for Tiffany's group. I know it's not called that. (laughs) It has a different name. But Tiffany's Park Group is a really good example here. So a final encouragement here is be salt and light. Matthew 5 says you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its, its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people show a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give it light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Next, this is number two, in your church. So I wanted to talk a little bit about an obscure New Testament woman named Dorcas. Kind of an unfortunate name, I know. Also, she's known as Tabitha. Who was this woman that was raised from the dead in Acts chapter 9? Of course, being raised from the dead was sort of the main point of this passage. But I just wanted to pause and look at who she was and what her reputation was. Because she had a reputation for great kindness and goodness. Dorcas was a Christian who was known for her practical acts of kindness to those in need, the widows in her church. When we hear the phrase full of in that passage, it implies that she was generous, heartfelt, and reliable. It wasn't just a one-time act. She was dearly missed, and the widows who were grieving her death showed and talked about her generous act of care for them. She had made tunics and things for them to wear. The widows at her, grave, at her bedside when she died gave great testimony to her kindness and goodness. Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth says this about Dorcas. When we treat people with kindness rather than indifference or impatience, we become channels of blessing, dispensing gracious words and actions that can't help but adorn the gospel of Christ. Another great verse Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are in the household of faith. So be praying and thinking about how you can be like Dorcas and show kindness in our church family. And finally, in your homes. That's number three. So this is really our main topic today, of course, being kind and good in the home with a special focus on parenting. So look no further than Proverbs 31 for an excellent example of biblical kindness in the home. The Proverbs 31 woman, our example, leaves a trail of goodness wherever she goes. She is described as a hard worker, strong, gifted, diligent. She ministers with grace and goodness and kindness. Kindness begins at home for her. 
She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She is not only kind, but she teaches her children to be kind. She's kind to her husband. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And her home is well taken care of. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Oddly enough, we can be so kind to house guests, visitors, friends over for dinner, but it's oh so tempting to be selfish and unkind and lazy in our everyday lives at home. Or is it just me? <laughs> God's grace in our lives is the only way we can be truly kind and good in our homes. In our own power, it's a temporary act of will that fades as soon as our nerves run out. Kindness at home takes a little extra effort. So remember we talked earlier with our definition on page one that kindness is an inner disposition created by the Holy Spirit that creates in us a sensitivity to the needs of our family. So please remember that kindness at home will look different for each of us. Every family has unique needs. We develop good works when our hearts are attuned to the kindness of those around us. We've given great opportunities for kindness and goodness in parenting, and it's not always easy. There's times when we're more in the flesh and not in the spirit, and sin creeps in. Colossians 3 says we're to put off certain behaviors and put on others. One verse in particular, Colossians 3.21, says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. In a similar verse, Ephesians 6.4 and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Probably seems like we just took a dark turn. <laughs> but we're going to take an honest look at some things we need to put off. Because parents can cause their children to become angry and bitter and discouraged. And a discouraged child is one who has lost heart and they stop trying. Taking these verses about provocation seriously means training and disciplining your children in an understanding and fair and kind way. God's not needlessly harsh to us, and we shouldn't be needlessly harsh to our children. So what does it mean to provoke, and how, could you be, how can we be on guard for this? So there's a list, and this I borrowed from Lou Priolo's book, The Heart of Anger. You've probably seen this list. It's, it's been around for a long time. And his book used to be called something slightly different the first time I owned it, about 20 years ago. But I think it should be mandatory reading. So I'm going to teach through this list and maybe listen for two or three things that you might, might need to watch for. We're all different. So this is a list of 25 things. Um, I think it's page three of your notes. I know I had to make it tiny because of space. <laughs> Get the book if you want to. First, lack of marital harmony. Hebrews 12:15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causes trouble. If your children are exposed to prolonged disharmony, it will affect them. Lou Priolo says, Bitterness is one of the links to the in the developmental chain of anger that leads to rebellion. In a home where the husband and wife have let go of the one flesh intended by God, it's not unusual for the wife to become attached spiritually to her children in an unbalanced way, 
often leading to a child-centered home. So there's two dangers that he points out with lack of marital harmony, among other things. One is your children can become bitter and angry. And secondly, if you're not one flesh with your husband, it's tempting to become spiritually attached to your children. Number two, establishing and maintaining a child-centered home. Your home should be Christ-centered with the husband and the wife working on being closer to each other than they are with anyone else, including the children. A democratic home leads to children thinking they have an equal role to their parents. And this can lead to anger when their children's desires are not met. So think about subtle ways you may drift towards child-centeredness. Modeling sinful anger, your children will pick up on your angry ways. And they also can become fearful and worried about your angry outbursts. Habitually disciplining while angry. Actually, all of these are, it becomes a, a problem when these things are habitual. We all fall short, right? But it's really like if something's continually happening. So habitually disciplining while angry. When you're angry, it's easier to over-discipline. Your anger may be perceived by your child as a personal attack. If he views your discipline as vindictive, he won't learn. The most important thing and the purpose of discipline that he has sinned against God. Instead, he'll learn that he has caused you trouble or embarrassment or made you angry. Scolding. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. One definition of scolding I read comes from the Greek definition, and it is to snort with anger. That's terrible, isn't it? Scolding doesn't teach. It causes more emotions. So, if you can't talk in a natural voice because of your angry, because of your anger, maybe wait. Six, <clears throat> excuse me, number six, being inconsistent with discipline, and that can look uh, several different ways. First of all, when parents have different expectations. Another way is changing the expectations suddenly and then disciplining for it. I was guilty of this one. Thirdly, allowing discipline, I'm sorry, allowing disobedience and failing to discipline when it's clearly needed. All three of those things can cause, can provoke anger and disobedience in your children. Again, when it's habitual. Having double standards. Lou Perillo says a parent who is not willing to practice the same biblical righteousness in his own life is not only a hypocrite, but a provoker of his children. It's do as I say, not as I do. This is often seen more in actions than in words. Are you disciplining your kids for getting angry, but you get angry yourself? Or using angry words? Being legalistic. This means putting man-made rules or rules of the house or preferences on the same level as God's rules. It's really clear, important to have a clear distinction. Number nine, not admitting when you're wrong and not asking for forgiveness. This one is huge. Did you get angry or scold or sin in some other way? If it directly involved your child or they witnessed it, admit you were wrong and talk through it with them in an age-appropriate way. It's not a suggestion to burden your children or turn them into your confidant or accountability partner. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So here's how to fix a wrong. It's really simple, and it's important to keep it simple when you have little ones. Acknowledge that you've sinned, 
and be specific, like mommy was angry and that's a sin against God. I should have controlled my temper and used kind words. And then ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? It's important to start doing this if you're not already. Children need this modeled for them. And you need to go through this process to right or wrong. Consistently finding fault. While you do have the responsibility to point out sinful behaviors and root out character problems, no one's suggesting you be critical or condemn, condemning or accuse all the time. Children shouldn't grow up thinking that their parents are rarely pleased with them. One safeguard against finding fault all the time is to make sure you're praising and complimenting. It's okay. Biblical achievements, uh, compliment them on biblical achievements. Some have suggested a ratio of 10 to 1 or maybe 5 to 1 is a good place to start. Next, parents reversing God-given roles. Ephesians 5.22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Number 12, not listening to your child's opinion or taking their side of the story. Okay, this is going to be for when they get older. If you have a one-year-old or two-year-old, it's probably not going to apply to you. But as your children get older, truly, it's okay to listen to their reasoning, opinions, and perspective. You'll get a view of their heart and give them an opportunity to explain. It doesn't mean a lack of consequences. Just make sure you're listening. Proverbs 18.3 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Comparing them to others, favorably or unfavorably. Not making time just to talk. Again, that's older. Older kids. Not praising or encouraging your children. This came up when we talked about consistent or constantly finding fault. Don't focus on what's wrong all the time. Lou suggests bathing your children in a solution of praise so that when the time for reproof and correction comes, your children will know it's from a, a place of biblical love. 16, failing to keep your promises. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Again, I'm just going to reiterate this. It's a habitual failure that can lead to discouragement, hurt feelings, loss of respect, and thoughts of being loved. That being said, you do need to teach them to handle disappointment as they get older because it's going to happen. They need to learn how to handle disappointment without anger or bitterness. Number 17, chastening in front of others. So something we learned from Matthew 18 is the principle of disciplining in private. Lou says the disciplinary principle here is that the circle of confession and correction should be as large as the offense. So if your child sins in front of, front of others, the rebuke can, doesn't have to be, but can be in some cases in front of others, but never with scolding or ridicule or anger. If the sin was not in front of others, the dis discipline should be handled between the parents, parent and child. Not allowing enough freedom, Common reasons for this are fear, overprotectiveness, insecurity, relying on tradition, unnecessary rules, desire to have perfect children. As your children get older, let them earn your trust. Okay, the opposite is allowing too much freedom. Don't allow sinful behavior. Discipline when it's called for and don't make excuses for sinful behavior. Mocking your children. Don't make fun of or talk about things your child has no control over like their intelligence, their athletic abilities, their appearance. Don't tell stories that spotlight your child's failures or sin. It shouldn't be table conversation. And can I also suggest that you're careful with teasing. 
Every family is different with this, so it's something for you to evaluate. It's probably healthy for us to learn to laugh at ourselves, but teething from a parent or sibling that crosses the line can be very painful. Abusing them physically, only discipline when your anger is in control so you don't cause harm. Number two is ridiculing or name calling. I think we covered that in number 20. Having unrealistic expectations. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child and think as a child and reason as a child. So the Bible acknowledges that children are different than adults. Your expectations for your children should be based on their age and development. You should not expect that your child will never sin. And we're getting close to the end here. Number 24, practicing favoritism. There are many subtle and not so subtle ways that favoritism seeps in. And few things are as hurtful and damaging. Make sure your children can expect the same treatment in the same circumstances. This goes for praise as well as discipline. And lastly, child training with worldly methodologies inconsistent with God's word. Back to Ephesians 6, 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. God's word is sufficient. And there are many good resources for this. Some of them I passed out. And I know you guys are well taught, so you know how many great resources you have in, in addition to God's word. So that's a list of 25 terrible things <laughs> that we could possibly do. So how do we avoid it? What should we do? So next in your notes, have realistic expectations. So just as a reminder, going back to our definition of kindness and goodness, Kindness is a hard attitude, a tender concern for your children, created by the Holy Spirit. Goodness is kindness in action, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So with that, I encourage you to study, plan, and talk to people and make sure you're not expecting too much or too little. Some things to think about. This is right out of my playbook. I thought a lot about, as I wish I could go back in time and do some things different. So learn from me. <laughs> so think about how old your children are and are you expecting them to more than they're physically able? Are you wanting them to eat too fast? Like, hurry up and eat. We've got to go. Okay, we'll put it in a baggie and eat in the car. Never have a potty accident. Do you take it personal when they wet their pants? And here's what I did is I wanted them to get dressed by themselves. I would say, go put your shoes and socks on in your shirt. I'm not going to mention names, but someone would inevitably come out with everything on backwards. And one time, one of my boys, I don't know how he did it, put the sleeve of his shirt over his head. And I had to cut the shirt off because it was choking him. I don't know how he did it. But sometimes their little hands really can't do as much as we want them to. So just make sure you're understanding what they're able to do or what they're mentally able, like clean up your room. I used to tell them this, go clean up your room, but they had no idea what to do. They need some structure and some help in getting organized. Or remembering more than one or two directions at a time. If you're giving them a list of three or four things to do and they really aren't able to remember that, you're really asking for trouble. Or what they're emotionally able to do. Little ones will cry and they won't have self-control without your support and kind instructions. And I remember teaching my kids how to stop crying because they don't know how to stop, mine didn't, maybe yours do, 
how to stop crying on their own. So it'd be like, take a deep breath. Okay, let's stop crying now. Are we done? Okay, get a Kleenex and dry your tears. So they need some coaching and help with these things. Just some things to think about. There's a lot more. Repetition and practice are needed for a long time. So work on having realistic expectations. It should be part of your plan for training and discipline. And it, again, it takes kindness and goodness. It takes understanding where they're at. Next in your outline is teach positive expectations. So teach and train your children what you want them to do. Biblical discipline means correcting wrong behavior and, very important, is practicing and teaching right behavior. I'm afraid we leave the second part or second point out of the conversation all too much. Training takes a lot of planning, thought, and practice. For example, if you're saying no touch and maybe smacking their hand, you're only half done. You need to teach them what to do. Give their hands something busy, maybe remove them from the tempting object and stay with them for a moment and praise them for obedience. Don't stop at the command to not do something. Children need support and coaching in what to do. If your kids are acting unruly, like running around or throwing things at home or anywhere, you need to give them something appropriate to do and train them to be obedient. Training means you're alongside your child, showing them how to act, how to play and talk. You're going to be playing Candyland a lot and that kind of thing. You're going to do hand over hand. Let's pick up the toys. Let's do it together. You'll need to start with manageable chunks of expectations. And reflect on periods of misbehavior. This is our last point. If there's a pattern of misbehavior, meltdowns, or need for discipline, you might need to take a look at the circumstances and change some things. You want to train for self-control, but start with what your child can really do. Think about where they're obedient, where they're successful, and start there and build from it. You might need to change the expectation or the amount of support. When I say amount of support, I mean you're with them. This is a great opportunity, this last point, for you to seek out older women and friends who are in the same season or slightly ahead of you. Read a lot of great parenting books and align your parenting with biblical practices. Okay, let's wrap this up. I've given you a lot to think about. <laughs> We didn't deserve God's goodness and kindness, so remember that this grace that we show our children and others is not something they have to earn or deserve. It's an expression of the love we received from Christ, and it's flowing to others. Goodness and kindness are an amazing result of a transformed heart. To be kind is to be like God. How we treat others puts Him on display. And in your notes at the bottom, there's three verses to encourage you on wisdom, instruction, and ability and desire. I'm going to let you read those in your group. And I was going to read Colossians 3, but i got to be honest, I brought my wrong glasses. <laughs> so, will you read Colossians 3? <laughs> you can stop. You don't have to read the part about submission, because that's a topic for another day. <laughs> okay, and I think uh, I'm going to pray for you, and I think we're going to uh, table groups. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us. And we know we didn't deserve it. And I thank you that we can daily live in your spirit. 
Lord, we trust in your grace and sovereignty. Although we fail, we know that you're in our lives and in the lives of our children, and we trust you for that. I thank you, Lord, for these mommies that are here today, and I pray that they would be encouraged and refreshed from this morning. And I thank you for the mentor moms in their heart for uh, the women that are with them today. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.